Hi, I'm Kanchan Koya. I'm an integrative nutritionist working at the intersection of food, health, and science. And you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hi, everyone. On this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with integrative nutrition expert, Kanchan Koya. Stay tuned. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this right now and sharing it with your friends and family, rating and reviewing and downloading wherever you find your podcasts, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydarndekar. So we all live with and at many intersections, different branches of our interests, our past history, our current activity, and even our future aspirations are always crossing over, sometimes passing and even merging. We often recognize creative tensions with these intersections, but when they harmonize and we can take advantage of recognizing and integrating them successfully, it can lead to great outcomes. Now, I'm sure that for some of these elements to synchronize well, especially related to our health and wellness, we need to be more conscious and intentional and knowledgeable. So it was terrific to share a conversation with Gunchen Koya, an integrative nutritionist who's working at that critical intersection of food, cooking, and health science. Gunchen has a PhD in molecular biology from Harvard and trained with the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. With her deep scientific expertise and embedded cultural upbringing in India, she's been sharing the importance of how to better weave cooking and recipes into a vibrant and healthy lifestyle. Now, one of these realizations came both as a mom and as a nutrition and life coach in the form of her book and blog called Spice Spice Baby, which aims to demystify using spices actively for health and healing with infants, children, and families, which as a pediatrician, I was certainly appreciative of. Activating elements of Ayurveda and yoga, Gunchen is thoughtful in simplifying the science, leveraging the literature, and harnessing the wisdom of living traditions, with content that covers everything from fasting and having chai, to using cumin and turmeric, to athletic greens and even eating with your hands. We had a chance to catch up and remember that everything we talked about here is informational and doesn't substitute for medical advice, so seek out your healthcare provider for that. But I started by asking her whether the intersection of food and cooking and science was a subtle development over time, and even perhaps the product of necessity being the mother of invention. I would say necessity was the mother of invention here. So if I think back to my childhood in Pune, India, which was absolutely fantastic, so many incredible memories. Um, I wasn't the healthiest kid. I struggled with a lot of gut health issues. I feel like I was uh, perpetually battling some kind of stomach infection and being prescribed some sort of unnecessary antibiotic for it because that was just the way it was back in India in the 1980s. I'd like to think things have improved, but you know, um, I so I never really felt vital or that sense of vitality that we all crave and I and I believe we're all entitled to and is our birthright. I struggled to feel comfortable in my skin and my body. Then um, I also was quite chubby as a kid, quite overweight, lethargic, 
struggled with weight issues, was um, teased for it by, you know, family members, well-meaning family members, friends, whatever. So I internalized this idea that like my body wasn't my friend and somehow I was like, you know, had this very expansive spirit and soul that was kind of trapped in this body that just wasn't quite behaving itself. Um, but I was very interested, I became very interested in biology and specifically molecular biology at a very young age. In eighth grade, I had a phenomenal teacher um, at my school in Pune who taught us about the structure of DNA and the base pairs and the double helix. And I just thought it was so utterly fascinating and decided that that's what I wanted to study and um, kind of stuck to those guns. Um, so, you know, both of these things were happening in parallel, my deep emerging interest in science, biology, the way our body works, and then this kind of deep dissatisfaction with my own body and my own health. And they were running in parallel. And I would say probably subconsciously, I was maybe leaning into biology to try to find solutions for my own discomfort and my own pain potentially, although I'm, I wasn't cognizant of it at the time. And then fast forward to, you know, my actual PhD research at Harvard Medical School and um, my lab was studying cancer biology and we were doing a screen against breast cancer. And one of the compounds in the screen was curcumin, which is the bioactive compound in turmeric, which for all of us from South Asia is a very familiar spice. And we may have been inundated with, you know, turmeric is going to cure everything kind of messaging as kids in India or, you know, kids of Indian descent here by our grandparents, our uncles, our aunties, and rolled our eyes at all that ancient wisdom. So I definitely was um, surprised pleasantly that my lab at Harvard was now looking at turmeric as a potential anti-cancer agent. And I think that was an aha moment for me. I've talked about it before. It really planted an important seed in my mind that, you know, there was power in natural products that we use every day in our kitchen and that there is tremendous potential for food to be incredibly healing. And so all of that stayed with me. And finally, in 2014, I launched Spice Spice Baby as a passion project, a blog, really an effort to educate the world about food as medicine, spice medicine, and how you can find that vitality that I had a hard time finding as a kid um, through the food we eat and the lifestyle practices we engage in. When you were either growing up or even as you discovered your passion for molecular biology and having some of these aha moments. Did you ever feel like either when you were getting your PhD or even afterward that you sort of needed to pick a lane rather than perhaps even having some of these worlds blend together? Because it sounds like there's such a, a deep personal weave to this. And then also becoming a parent probably factors into this, you know, somewhat as well. But did did you feel like, you know, wow, this, you know, these worlds they can't necessarily merge together or it was hard to find a way to merge them together. Absolutely. I picked the lane that made the most sense to me at the time from a fear-based perspective. And the fear was disappointing people in my life, my parents, my family, people who were like, oh, wow, she went to Harvard and did her PhD. What is she going to do next? So my lane was, you know, what's logical for someone with a PhD in molecular cancer biology to do if they don't want to become a professor 
you go into industry and you try to find novel therapeutics and drugs. And so that's what I did. Started a biotech company with a fellow grad student focused on antibiotic drug discovery. Everyone was very pleased. It made a lot of sense. It looked great on paper. I wouldn't say I hated it. It was exciting and I learned a lot. But obviously my passion lay elsewhere. And I think it was a journey finding that courage, that sort of standing in my truth to say like, this is the lane that I'm standing in. I'm actually creating the lane, yeah. so to speak. And I don't really care what people think. Right. And, and in then stepping into that and figuring out that, yes, this is my spot. This is what I'm so passionate about. This is kind of what I'm a natural at. Do you ever feel like you're an integrative nutrition, food as medicine evangelist who happens to also be Indian American or South Asian American? Or is the South Asian American or Indian American background kind of what drives the evangelism at all? Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I really do think this idea of food as medicine is quite integrated into our culture as South Asians, as Indians, because of the 5,000-year-old science of Ayurveda that we all grow up in, exposed to. Even if we don't have, you know, an actual Ayurvedic doctor or Ved in our house or Every household in India is somewhat of an expert in natural medicine. Yes. And so I think it's very part of our culture. I was I grew up with loads of natural remedies kind of thrown at me and really was quite disdainful or skeptical about them being of a more scientific bent. But I do think it was, it's part of who I am. I think now as a scientist who understands modern science, I feel kind of uniquely poised to blend the two worlds. Um, I'm not an Ayurvedic expert, but yeah. all of the knowledge that I inherited from, you know, just the culture and my family definitely plays into the message that I share that a lot of this ancient wisdom is indeed being corroborated by modern science and leading to some really powerful insights about how we can be healthier. Did the, did the idea or even the um, spooling as you went along with the PhD and as you learn more and more uh, about the molecular biology and the science behind things, were there things that you perhaps even had to discover about yourself and unlearn from, you know, how you felt about some of these living traditions? For sure. Um, I think I started out as a true kind of reductionist scientist. Like I need to see the evidence. I need to yeah. see the data. And, you know, now I'm willing to say that it's okay to say that you don't know certain things. You're not closing the door. So when I think about some of the holistic traditions or some of the wisdom around Ayurveda, around, for example, the energetics of food or the alignment between our individual constitution and, you know, nature and the constituents in nature, we don't really have scientific evidence for those things. But I'm at a place where I'm willing to say there's something there that draws me in despite the lack of evidence. Yeah. And the lack of evidence doesn't always mean evidence of lack, as they say. And so I've, I guess it's, I've, been, I've expanded my thinking to be more open-minded yeah. um, to some of these more intuitive ways of thinking about medicine and health and healing. How do you think the message would be maybe different if your audience was primarily based in India, 
as opposed to mm. kind of an American audience. Um, would you, would there be a different kind of evangelism that you'd have to try and at least <laughs> practice? So my audience is quite diverse and I love that. And I would say it's, it, it, there are South Asians that I know follow me and find my content valuable, but I have a you know, wide variety yeah. of people from all backgrounds. Um, I think it would be different in India. I mean, I think Indians, for better or worse, are quite opinionated about truths or truisms yeah. that they see as truths around some of these things. And there's very strong beliefs based on like family messaging or family experience, you right. know, and I don't fault anyone for those views. Um, I don't know that people would find my message that enlightening in India. Mm. Uh, maybe they would, I don't know. But I really like bringing some of India's ancient wisdom to non-Indians because yeah. of the scientific credibility that I have. Um, so people can be less eye-rolly about some of our, you know, ancient insights, which I think are quite powerful and helpful. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with integrative nutrition expert, Gunchen Goya. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Tam France, and you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with Gunchen Koya. So now we're, we're sort of in an era where the internet and our phones and, you know, all this has put so much information at our fingertips and knowledge is ubiquitous. It's out there. Yet people also fear experimentation and discovery and instinct. I mean, to build their own experience and instinct. And we don't always have our extended family around. We don't have our grandmothers um, there to necessarily share what the, those living traditions have have been passed upon, and it doesn't necessarily shepherd self trust a lot of the time. So, so how how do you think you've played a role in perhaps accelerating some of that? Um, accelerating some of that current thinking on the internet. You mean? No, I mean you know helping people opposite. to. <laughs> yeah, I hope the opposite. Hopefully the opposite. Okay, yes. Um, yeah, I think I have a very moderate probably not very sexy stance around nutrition and well-being. Um, I think, unfortunately, we live in a time where a lot of the extreme views, whether it's politics or nutrition or health and wellness, seem to dominate the dialogue. I don't know if it's because humans need to latch on to something very definitive and black and white to feel like they belong to something. I mean, there's we can go into a lot of the whys, but... I feel very frustrated by the fact that a lot of the information out there is very extreme, very draconian, and actually counter to the evidence. The evidence is actually in favor of things that we should all be doing that are quite obvious, 
yeah. and quite unsexy to talk about. Whereas, you know, on the one hand, you have the people saying like, eat only meat and that's like the cure for all disease and be a carnivore. And then on the other hand, it's like, don't eat anything yeah. um, animal derived. I mean, there's such, there's such extreme views. And I think I take more of a middle ground a more nuanced view, a more flexible view, a more bio-individual view rather than like, this is the one size fits all. Sure. And I think that's more helpful to the people that follow me, but maybe it's also why I don't have like millions of followers because we do have right now this trend of like gravitating towards the overly simplistic extreme view that in my opinion can be quite damaging. Yeah, and, and even with that, you know, people even though they may know that their instinct is telling them one thing because they have so much variation in the messaging or the extremes of messaging that they don't necessarily trust those instincts and they don't have family members or, or like I said, our ajis or grandmothers to necessarily yeah. help steer or guide them in that way. So I, I wonder if there's sort of this erosion of instinct and experience that, that helps guide you and rather you rely on making sure that something has seven Yelp reviews to to follow it. Yeah, I mean, in my coaching practice, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or my group coaching with women, I definitely see my role big time, not just telling people what to do or what the science says, but sort of really teaching them to pay attention to what their body, mind, spirit is asking of them for true health and healing. It's We are completely losing touch with that. And I, and I think just the family structures, like you mentioned, the fact that there's a lot of nuclear families and like over information that really is, it's hard to trust your instinct when you're being bombarded with so many very definitive sounding views and you feel like, you know, you're missing out or, or you're doing something horribly wrong by just finding right. your own way. But ultimately, I think that is what we need more of. I'm curious about one thing. I saw a wonderful video that, that you had put, shared about eating with your hands. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> did you grow up eating like that? And was that something of a, of a family tradition for you? And how has that sort of resonated now more from the scientific aspect? Yeah, well, I definitely grew up eating with my hands. Pretty much every meal I grew up eating in Pune. Most meals, home-cooked, traditional Indian meals. My family is Sindhi, but we grew up, you know, in Pune. So like I speak Marathi, I love Maharashtrian food. And um, I grew up eating everything with my hands, even rice. You know, that's like the hardcore <laughs> yeah. way to like eat rice is with your hands, the true OG, like hand using person. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have moved towards more utensil use in the United States, especially if it's yeah. not Indian food. Yeah. But to be honest, when I'm not with people and I'm by myself, even if I'm eating, I mean, I'm going to say this out in public, but even if I'm eating a salad by myself, I will resort to my hands, almost like a kosher <laughs> beer vibe, Yeah. you know, like, a... <laughs> but um, the science around eating with your hands, I think is still emerging. I haven't seen anything super definitive, but yeah. We do know, at least from experience and anecdotes, that there is something really satisfying about the sensory experience of using your hands with your food. I mean, this is the way kids eat. Like, yeah. this is the natural way they want to eat. And when I tell my kids they can go for it and eat with their hands, they're like, oh, really? Like, they're super excited yeah. to just take, you know, handfuls of rice or whatever and put it in, in their mouth. Um I think it's very natural as humans to eat with our hands. We didn't yeah. have, unless we needed to 
slice like certain things that were un inedible with our hands. No, I was just gonna say, I feel like, you know, uh, eating with your hands is, if you don't eat with your hands, you're perhaps missing a sense or an element of that food experience that is biologically there for you. And therefore, you know, we're not necessarily tapping into that. Perhaps also it forces the timing of how you eat to slightly be different and perhaps changes gas patterns and, and how you might necessarily you know, develop at least some, and I'm, I'm making part of that up, but still it seems like that might be at least, you know, of some value. Well, I would be willing to put money on the fact that people who eat with their hands might have a more diverse gut microbiome. Yeah. Um, and we know that gut microbiome diversity is very beneficial. The more diverse your gut microbes, the better off you are kind of like a garden that has multiple varieties of plants versus just like a monoculture. Yeah. Um, when I posted the video of myself eating with hands, my hands, some people of non-Indian descent were kind of horrified that it was really unhygienic. Mm. And, you know, I think some of that is just lack of awareness or maybe not sure. being exposed to it growing up. But yeah, we also live in a world where everything has to be super sanitized. I mean, especially post COVID, you know, everyone's like rubbing sanitizer on everything. And yeah. We're, we're really meant to be exposed to more microbes than we think are good for us. Sure. Um, and we can handle that diversity. And of course, there are some negative ones. But for the most part, you know, microbes on our skin are beneficial. And I think that it can only be helpful. I mean, obviously, wash your hands if you've come from the playground or something, sure. you know, or sure. like the New York City subway. <laughs> Although you Either believe it those, or not. Right. Believe it or not, there was a study that was done in Boston on the public transport looking at people at surfaces and like yeah. the bacteria that are present that we all are so scared of. We think they're like sickeningly disgusting. And it was basically the bacteria that are present on our skin where many of which sure. are commensal bacteria that have benefits, you know? So we are a little bit over paranoid in the West about not wanting to touch bacteria or whatever, even though yeah. they're very much a part of us. And then the other thing I'll say is just like flavor in my experience, <laughs> I can taste food so much better when I eat with my hands. I think there's a warming aspect Mm. The food gets like essentially warmed and a little bit more macerated and massaged with your hands. Sure. And some of those essential oils or aromatic oils are released. I was on a food contest show on Food Network, <laughs> very random, a couple of years ago that I actually won. It was called Money Hungry and I had to taste 15 things and guess what they were. And the reason I won, honestly, is because I started using my hands. There you go. And they were like, go for it, you know, use your hands. And I was like, I'm going to channel my Indian jeans right now and win this thing with my hands so anyway. well and 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 particularly for me personally i mean my favorite food in the entire world is is mango and i cannot even oh. imagine not eating mango uh, without uh using my hands so there there's always that i'm curious for you what's a food that you perhaps grew up disliking but have grown to love now because of your knowledge and because of you know something that you know about its value Wow, great question. Um, I would have to say fish. Huh. So I grew up in Pune, where a lot of the fish came from Mumbai. My grandfather was a huge fish lover. And um, I hated it. I thought <laughs> it smelled really strong, which it probably did because you know, back then cold, cold storage, <laughs> right. of fresh caught fish in Mumbai to Pune transport. I don't know. 
I just was like, I don't want to go anywhere near fish. The first time I saw smoked salmon or salmon, I was like revolted. And I would say now it's one of my favorite foods, mm. <laughs> probably because I know how good it is for us. Um, you know, you don't have to eat fish to get your omega-3s. There are other ways to get it. But right. I personally love it. And it's definitely a food I didn't love. And now it's like I've learned to cook it in all these amazing ways. So Yeah, I, I've sort of felt the same way about both gobi and wanga or cabbage and, and eggplant and you know, yeah. finding value in cruciferous things has been a, a fun, you know, exploration for me. Do you, in thinking about different foods and habits and and spices that you see people use or perhaps even misuse, do have you found that there's a common pet peeve for yourself uh, or even a misconception or myths that you're just like, man, if, if there was just one way I could make this disappear... This is the thing that I would attack. Okay, I'm going to say it. People are going to be like, oh, she's, I don't know what they're going to say. Um, so I don't think that many Indians do this because of the way we've been exposed to the use of this spice and how it's traditionally cooked with. But I see a lot of people here in the West, bless them, no offense, totally understand. I'm happy they're using the spice, throwing raw turmeric powder into smoothies. Mm. like making a smoothie with like a big teaspoon of turmeric. And if you go back to the traditional way we use, you know, turmeric haldi in cooking, it's always bloomed in a fat source like ghee or oil yeah. with some heat. And we have scientific evidence that that is the ideal way to enjoy the spice, to extract those important bioactives like curcumin to make them more bioavailable to the body. Yeah. I'm not saying the turmeric in the smoothie is going to do any harm, but you're definitely not getting everything out of it. I also can't imagine it tastes very good, to be honest. Like there's something that happens to turmeric when you bloom it in a fat source yeah. that like mellows out some of that flavor. So I'm just going to say, don't put turmeric powder in your smoothies. Oh. Um, maybe use the raw turmeric root and then make <clears throat> yourself like a delicious haldi dude if you really must enjoy a spoonful of turmeric. It's interesting because, so my, my wife is a, she practices allopathic Western medicine. She's a physician also, and she also practices Ayurvedic medicine. And, and she's often shared some of these kinds of principles and, and generalities, and in, in some ways kind of, I wouldn't say rules, but some great you know traditions that are really meant to be observed, like you know not heating honey as it would destroy its natural composition and and some of the great properties it has and increased sort of ama and and my mom and my grandmothers naturally knowing what spices and combinations to use to activate their sort of powers if you will almost like setting some ground rules to how you would actually use some of these things that were good for our health are these traditions and and principles of ancestral cooking now just you know when people are thinking about them is there a risk for sometimes them not knowing what some of the living traditions or, or history might be behind that and just bringing it to consciousness and perhaps even misusing some of these things? Yes, I think so. I think there's definitely, I wouldn't say a lack of interest, maybe just a lack of exposure sure. and education yeah. around some of these more traditional ways of cooking with things. I would say the biggest misuse I see is that we live in a culture where there's a belief that if something is good for me, 
then more is better. Mm. And it's like, if turmeric is good for me, I am going to just put it in everything all day, every day. I'm going to take a capsule, you know, and we, we, turmeric is pretty safe, at least in studies, like you can go to pretty high doses, whether it's supplements or the actual spice, and it's pretty well tolerated, except if you have gallstones, you should be careful of overdoing it. But, you know, from an Ayurvedic perspective, there is such a thing as too much turmeric because of that concept of energetics of food. You know, there like a, a, a good example would be something like black pepper. Like it's it has a lot of great benefits. It, it really improves the bioavailability of turmeric. So it's great to pair the two together. Yeah. It has some antioxidants in its own regard. But there is a compound in black pepper that at least in animal studies and test tube studies, can be pro-cancerous and so you know it's like would should you just take something like black pepper that has benefits and just have loads of it all day every day maybe that would be harmful so i think this tendency that we want to just take the one superfood or the sort of handful of superfoods and just od on them instead of focusing on a more balanced dietary pattern that includes all the things in culinary balanced amounts is maybe what gets us into trouble and what i consider kind of misuse it's almost like the someone who reads something who says, oh, look at that. Cinnamon's going to help with my glycemic control. And then now all of a sudden is having, you know, tons of cinnamon all over the place and, and really sort of misusing that. Have you found that because of that tendency for people to overuse or misuse or go in excess of things, does that make messaging for you any that much more difficult because you know what people are perhaps prone to when they're trying to sort of synthesize these things yeah i mean i i you know i just stay true to the message that i believe is based in based in the true evidence which is um these things do add up in culinary amounts spices in culinary amounts can have benefits and reduce things like inflammation in real time after a single meal. You don't have to go crazy. You don't have to have them all day, every day. You don't have to supplement. And I, you know, I just keep sort of hitting home this message that it's the overall dietary pattern that matters the most versus a single superfood. Um, I think people are receptive to it. I mean, at least my audience is, but there's probably a whole cohort that just doesn't think I'm helpful enough because I'm not telling them of the one magic bullet they should be sort of deploying right every day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so many of our traditions, yoga, Ayurvedic medicine, Ayurveda in general, these are longitudinal practices, right? They're not sort of like, give me the, the silver magic wand to make things magically disappear. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with integrative nutrition expert, Ganchen Koya. Stay tuned. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, this is Madhuri Dixit, and you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Hey there, I'm Abhay Dandekar, and welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin now our conversation with Kanchan Koya. 
I, I'm curious about, about one aspect of this. So far, when either you've been sharing some of these ideas on social media or even when you wrote your book, what have you so far discovered and learned about yourself in, in highlighting these? What have been some of the changes or, or even discoveries that you've made about yourself? And for that matter, even the discoveries you've made as a parent. So the one discovery I have made about myself is that I am a perfectionist and I'm afraid of failure. Mm. I never thought I was a perfectionist because I never thought anything I did was perfect. Mm. And I had to be reminded by my therapist <laughs> that that is the hallmark of perfectionism, yeah. that you never quite think what you're doing is perfect, but you're always striving for perfect. And so... You know, I think um, just becoming more mindful of that tendency and being very compassionate towards why I have that tendency because of whatever, like childhood and pressure, academic growing up and whatnot, you know, for no fault of no single person, just a cultural thing, maybe just how I'm wired or messages I internalized. I have learned that that perfectionism can be a strength, but it can also be a huge roadblock to me trying new things. And so, you know, a big part of my sort of work, my internal work this year and even last year has been to sort of mindfully, gently shed some of that perfectionism so that I can um, tread new waters and try new things that I think are going to help people, even though they might not be a home run on day one. Sure. I've also learned that even though I love science, I do love the creative side of things. I never thought I would like food photography and food styling and making huh. food look pretty and yeah. recipe creation. You know, I thought I was just interested in the health side, but I'm actually really passionate about how beautiful food can be, how, um, what a source of connection it can be. Um, I'm sort of leaning into all of that as well. So, yeah, like an aesthetic, aesthetic joy. Yes, an aesthetic joy. It's, yeah. a, it's a beautiful visual medium. I didn't think I would like all of that as much as I do. And I'm happy that I do because I have to do yeah. it all day as part of content <laughs> creation. Right. And then I've also learned, and again, working on, you know, that I... I tend to do a lot of things by myself. So I'm very much like I've been pretty much a one woman show, which sounds great. Like, oh, look at this platform I built all by myself. But I yeah. think there's so much power in collaboration and teams and like delegating and working with people. And, you know, it's something I have to really learn and teach myself. So that's another goal this year is to b bring people on to help really amplify the message um, yeah. and to let go of some control and see a lot of power and strength in that. Either from the aesthetics of things or from the collaboration and and delegating or even finding more avenues to, to collaborate. Have, have these, and, and of course, in the knowledge base that you've developed, have, have these become a good source of or a resource for parenting for you as well? Oh my gosh, I feel like, you know, even like the perfectionism really comes into play when it comes to parenting. Um, I started Spice Spice Baby because my son was six months old. I didn't want him to struggle with health issues the way I had struggled with health issues, which is why I started to be really conscientious about what I was feeding him and started putting, you know, spices like digestion boosting spices in his lentils or anti-inflammatory spices because he had eczema 
in his like avocado puree, whatever, really like the main impetus for the founding of Spice Spice Baby. But I think sometimes that mindset can really be a hindrance in parenting. Like you have to be the perfect parent. You have to provide the perfect nutrition. I mean, hello, my kid is 10 now and it's not happening. <laughs> it's not happening. He has a mind of his own. I mean, I think he's a great adventurous eater, but he has to forge his own path and I'm doing the best I can and sort of realizing that again, like perfectionism can really rob you of that joy, that, you know, the, the joy that comes from being present, from being fluid and open and flexible as a parent, um, knowing you're doing the best you can. I wonder if that's where the kind of restorative practice is so important, right? To actually reflect and pause and, and soak it in and understand why, you know, there's an importance to um, restoration, even on a daily, hourly basis, sometimes as a parent, right? You know, all the things I think that will resonate with any parent, you can't pour from an empty cup, whether you're a content creator, educator, or parent. So really carving out those moments in the day to take care of yourself, not just by going to the spa or whatever, but like downshifting, you know, like we live in a world where everything is happening at breakneck speed. And we feel like if we're not following that paradigm, we're missing out and recognizing the need, the natural need to downshift, to slow down, to find those pockets of restoration, whether in work or as a parent, so that you can be more effective, be more giving and, you know, just show up as the best version of yourself in that role. So much of what you've talked about and socialized and evangelized and become a terrific expert at has great foundational roots in, again, living traditions and traditional practices like yoga, like yoga, like Ayurveda. Yet often it's the Harvard PhD that buys the first layer of credibility. I'm curious, is in some ways, is that unfair? Or is it more of a reality that you've had to grapple with in trying to balance, you know, thousands and thousands of year old traditions with something that gives you licensure and agency sometimes to almost fuel that message. Mm-hmm. I don't, I would say, I think it's unfair to the people who are truly educated in those living traditions who don't have the sort of PhD title from whatever university that are maybe not taken as seriously right. by the general public. I really do see the tides changing though and shifting I think there's a hunger and a desire from people who maybe were skeptical for things that are more rooted in these you know traditional ways of thinking about healing so I really do think I do think the Harvard PhD gets me noticed because there aren't that many Harvard PhDs talking about food as medicine right and you know drawing from some of these ancient traditions but I generally think there's been a shift and maybe it was COVID. Maybe it's just the times we're in where yeah. people are much more receptive. And that's great for all of us because I think we can learn so much. We don't have to jettison modern medicine. I think it's extremely powerful. You're a doctor, you know. I mean, it's done great things to improve quality of life and lifespan. But if we integrated the two, I think we could really like take things to the next level. Yeah. One final thought, and, and that is... When you reflect on the work you've done, when you are sort of thinking about the work that still needs to be done, have you been able to 
in some ways generate and maintain and cultivate trust. How do you feel that you have fueled this for others to trust your work? And in some ways for you as someone with a background in perfectionism, um, for you to trust mm -hmm. yourself. Always be willing to change your mind and always be willing to share that you've changed your mind. I think attaching yourself to a certain principle or idea, especially in the field of nutrition, which is very complex, yeah. you can find evidence to prove anything in nutrition. Right. Any bias you have, you can cherry pick evidence. So I try to hold myself to the standard that I will do the best I can given my understanding of the literature so that I can be as helpful as I can to the people I serve. But I would like to have the option, permission to change my mind based on my read on the literature, based on my understanding of the data and new data that emerges and my own experience um, right. and other people's lived experience. And I'm very candid about that. And it starts with me. So I try to not be dogmatic about these views and be very fluid and flexible as they evolve and then share that when it does happen. And I think that builds trust and credibility. Well, it's building trust and credibility and changing people's experiences and benefiting so many, honestly, across the world. So Gunshin, thank you so much for a terrific conversation. And I hope we can do this again at some point. Thank you, Abhay. You asked really fantastic questions, many of which I've never been asked before. So it was really enriching for me, and I am so grateful to have been on. Thanks again, Gunjan. And check her out on Instagram and at spicespicebaby.com. Instinctively, I'm threatened by AutoGPT, but yet I'm fascinated. And this is an intersection to figure out soon. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darnikar.